You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. I'd like to thank our friends at Movement for their continued support of SpyCast, and welcome Action Heat to the SpyCast family. I'll tell you more about these great products later, but first, let's meet our guests. So we're joined today by Ned Price, who is a lecturer at the George Washington University and a fellow at the New America Foundation. He previously served as Special Assistant to President Obama on the National Security Council staff, where he was also the spokesperson and Senior Director for Strategic Communications. Prior to that, Ned was an Assistant Press Secretary and Director for Strategic Communications on the National Security Council staff. And prior to that, he was at CIA, where he was a spokesperson and, before that, a PDB briefer and senior analyst covering a range of strategic and tactical issues. He publicly resigned from the agency in February 2017 after more than a decade of service, and we will certainly talk about why. And prior to joining the CIA, he was an associate of the Cohen Group, working under former Secretary of Defense William Cohen on a variety of public policy, nonprofit, and business initiatives. Welcome, Ned. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Thanks for having me, Vince. So we'll start where we do with many former practitioners, and then talk a little bit about what drove you to a career in national security and intelligence. Was this always the plan? Were you a budding high school student saying, I want to work for CIA one day? Uh, I will have to admit, I was one of those foreign policy nerds, uh, even in high school. And I knew that I wanted to go into the field of international affairs. But as you know, that's a broad field, and there are plenty of opportunities under that under that umbrella. Uh, I went to school at Georgetown, um, and about two weeks uh, upon moving from uh, Dallas, Texas, where I was born and raised, uh, to Washington, uh, D.C. for college, uh, was 9-11. Um, and so I was a freshman at Georgetown, uh, and that is when it crystallized. I don't know if on that day, but around that day, certainly, when it crystallized in my mind that uh, the agency, that certainly the national security world, uh, was where I wanted to end up. There is a generation our age, so we look like we're relatively in the same ballpark. The, their origin story will be 9-11. And it makes tons of sense, but it just, you know, I guess for our parents or our grandparents' age, it might be the Cuban Missile Crisis yeah. or World War II. I mean, for us, 9-11 really seems to codify a lot of our reasons for going into the business that we did. I can't tell you how many, uh, and, and quite literally I can't tell you in some cases, how many uh, uh, colleagues from college uh, went to CIA, uh, went to other elements of the national security workforce, enrolled in ROTC, uh, took on careers in public service, uh, broadly defined. And, you know, public service is not just working in the national security workforce. It's uh, working for uh, the greater good, working for humanity. Um, and a lot of my colleagues, um, through both anecdotal chats and uh, having caught up with them in the, in the years since, uh, that was a formative experience for them uh, and one that, that really pushed them along in that direction. Did you strategize your path to CIA? And the reason I'm asking that question is, do you have any advice for those that are thinking about a career at some point, college students or grad students, about a career at CIA? I, I get asked that question a lot, and the answer is uh, I really didn't. Um, I worked hard in college. I studied abroad. I learned a foreign language. 
I took uh, classes uh, that interested me, uh, and they happened to be in uh, counterterrorism, for example, uh, in, in regions including the Middle East that were of significant interest uh, and still are of significant interest uh, to the intelligence community. And uh, I ended up applying online. I um, went to CIA.gov my, the fall uh, semester uh, in, of my senior year in college, uh, filled out the application online, uh, thought about for a while what I wanted to say in my cover letter, uh, thought about the writing samples, uh, everything that went into it. Uh, and several months later, I got what was called a conditional offer of employment, and that started me on the track there. Did you, am I right to think you started as a CT analyst? Or That's a right. Yeah, so I, I applied to be a counterterrorism analyst, and in February of 2006, I uh, EOD'd, entered on duty uh, at the CIA um, as a counterterrorism analyst, and so I was uh, stationed in the counterterrorism center uh, for uh, those first few years I was at CIA. Are, do you still use that training to kind of look at the world? Are you are you analyzing how we're doing against ISIS and Al Qaeda? I mean, Al Qaeda not getting a lot of attention anymore because of ISIS, uh, but of course they're still the main threat because of the kind of their targeting. I mean, from from that time period, you know, did you we understood a lot about ISIS post? I mean, about Al Qaeda. Sorry, post nine eleven. Uh, but are, are we were are you worried? Should we be worried that we kind of refocused on ISIS, which Al-Qaeda's mission is to reach out and touch us here in the United States. ISIS has always been regional versus, you know, international. It's interesting to compare where we were uh, when I started as a counterterrorism analyst in 2006 to where we are now, and you're uh, exactly right. Uh, The threat at the time in 2006 was Al-Qaeda core, meaning the same group of individuals, many of the same group of individuals um, who attacked us on 9-11. Bin Laden was still alive. Uh, Zawahiri was uh, still very much in charge. we saw a an exodus, uh, and this is something we focused on quite a bit, of uh, young recruits from places like the United Kingdom, um, from uh, other places in Western Europe that worried us tremendously. And many of these individuals uh, went to the Afghanistan-Pakistan border region, which if you, if you can remember all the way back to 2006 through you know, 2010, 2011, that was the focus of our, of our counterterrorism efforts. Uh, and over the course of the years, scores of young men uh, uh, with access to the West in the form of Western passports, um, be they Brits or other Europeans, uh, traveled to uh, this border region, um, in some cases with pre-existing ties to al-Qaeda. In some cases, uh, they went there with no ties, and they sought to, to link up with the group. And that was our focus, was identifying these people uh, and making sure they were systemically flagged uh, so that they couldn't be dispatched back to the West. Um, and if you recall, uh, there was this plot in 2006, and it was a first real big thing I worked on, um, launched out of the tribal areas uh, of Pakistan and involving uh, several of these um, British citizens of Pakistani descent uh, who went back to the United Kingdom and were tasked with uh, assembling liquid explosives to take on board airplanes uh, heading to the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was really, um, that was really uh, representative of the nature of the threat we faced. And now, you know, we're taping this uh, just a couple days after the, um, the truck attack in New York City. Uh, and now the model of terrorism that we see, it doesn't emanate from Afghanistan, Pakistan. It doesn't emanate, by and large, from al-Qaeda Corps. It doesn't even emanate from AQAP, the uh, affiliate in Yemen that um, once al-Qaeda Corps in the Afghan-Pakistan border region started to disintegrate, uh, thanks in large part to U.S. counterterrorism efforts, uh, really took up the mantle. Now it's, it's ISIL. ISIL poses um, the, the biggest threat uh, to the West, but it's not the same, uh, the, 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 the nature of the threat is different. It's evolved. Uh, it is not this same centrally directed Well, I was going to say, al-Qaeda was centrally planned, yeah. right? I mean, it, it's, it's word comes down from on high to the minions in the field and they carry out the attacks. Now everything is inspired versus directed from a certain central location. That's exactly right. It was a franchise uh, that 
with the CEO still very much in a hands-on uh, leadership capacity uh, to include uh, uh, hatching and overseeing uh, some of these anti-Western plots. And now with ISIL, it's a very different model. Of course, there have been uh, directed plots uh, against the West uh, that have emanated from uh, Syria and Iraq uh, to include, uh, it sounds like, the, the Paris attacks of a couple years ago. Um, but that's not the norm. The norm is what we saw in New York City a couple days ago. Um, one deranged individual having been poisoned, uh, sometimes online, sometimes in person, um, uh, with this ideology of hate, ISIL's message of uh, Islam against the West, uh, and taking that narrative and taking actions into his or her, in this case, his own hands. And the challenge here is that in the old model, you would have people traveling, you would have people communicating, um, whether it was with operatives in Pakistan or Afghanistan or operatives in Yemen or operatives in Somalia. And you would have these telltale signs, whether it was travel or communication or, or wire transfers. And you'd have clues to be able to identify these people. The challenge today is um, someone can sit in his or her basement or his or her parents' basement and read this stuff and uh, internalize it and radicalize uh, without even, in some cases, making contact with anyone else. And it makes it so much more difficult uh, to identify these people and to try and thwart that kind of threat. Well, and without a centrally located headquarters, there's no geographical sense of where these people are coming from. This guy was an Uzbek national. Uzbekistan's never even been mentioned as a part of any kind of travel ban. We certainly have a conversation about yeah. that. Yeah. But, I mean, you'd have to ban the vast majority of the world because you yeah. could have even nations that aren't predominantly Muslim. I mean, yeah. the stands tend to be that have these lone gun wolf, whatever the hell you want to call them, that are inspired by ISIS. You could have a British national with a British passport coming to the United States and I don't care how many countries you try to ban people from, it's not going to stop. I'm not trying to scare anybody, but that's kind of without a centrally focused geographical location to focus on, you're, you're in a very different world now. That's exactly right. And, and I think uh, to put an even finer point on this, uh, to eliminate the kind of threat we saw a couple days ago in New York City, you'd have to ban the Internet. Uh, even if someone was born here, lived his or her entire life in middle America, they can still be susceptible to the same sort of online uh, poison that seems to infected have infected this person's mind. I think when the facts of this case are, are all said and done, uh, the, the national origin of this individual will be far less important uh, than what he seems to have come across, whether it was online, whether it was radicalization uh, in person uh, with some of his associates. And that really gets at the challenge. It, it's not just people traveling. It's not just people being born in conflict zones and, and having those experiences. It's people who are able to, uh, are able to get a glimpse of uh, this vial and this poison online. And getting rid of that uh, is an especially complicated endeavor when we have something in this country called the First Amendment. Yeah. I mean, you also have to, to be much more looking like the Stasi under the Cold War or the Cuban CDR where you have informants on every single block. Um, I mean, your, your career at CIA spanned, I'd say, 2.0001 presidential administrations. Um, was the constant conversation and others I've talked to have said this I just want to you know see what your point of this on the constant conversation especially in the CT ranks of maintaining that balance between security and the kind of foundations of this country the individual liberties that we all enjoy yeah that that's exactly right and look I think the the pendulum has swung over the years I remember uh, one of my first days in the counterterrorism center, early 2006, uh, I walked in there and there was a there was a large poster, and uh, the words there were "Today is September 12th," uh, and that was the mantra. That was the thinking. Um, we were, you know, uh, less than five years removed from the 9/11 attacks, but it didn't feel like five years. Mm -hmm. uh, it didn't feel like five years in large part because every single day. Um, every single hour, in, in some cases, there were fresh reports of people planning to do very bad things uh, somewhere in the world, and in some cases, uh, very bad things against the United States. So there was this mentality there that we had to be on the ball all the time, and that there were these uh, tremendously capable forces out there that were seeking uh, to do us harm, and that was absolutely the case. Um, 
you know, with the death of Bin Laden, with other milestones in the counterterrorism campaign, uh, the capabilities of some of these groups have been degraded. And I think with that, um, and with the Obama administration, there was uh, another approach taken, and it was an approach that emphasized our values, uh, as well as our hard national security assets. Uh, And I think that really had traction, and it certainly gained traction with the success we were able to achieve in the counterterrorism campaign against some of these groups. Well, let me, let me talk to you a little bit about that that part of your career at CIA, because you were an analyst, but you eventually would move into communications. And this is something we deal with a lot here at the museum. But because of 9-11, I think, and a rash of TV shows and movies, more people know or think they know, I'm putting emphasis on think they know, more about the world of national security and intelligence than they might have during other generations. Does this make the job of communicating to the public easier or harder when they have a potential baseline, but it might be a crappy baseline because they've watched too much Homeland, you know, or 24, where Kiefer Sullivan breaks the guy's finger and he tells them all about the plot? I mean, it, obviously, it's a double-edged sword, but, you know, in your what side of the pendulum does that fall on for you? Right. I think nothing did more than uh, uh, than 24 than to distort the image of the CIA. Um For people who have spent time there, uh, the agency that they see in uh, series like 24 or uh, the movie Zero Dark Thirty, um, it it doesn't, it certainly doesn't resemble the agency that I knew and that I think um, all of my colleagues knew and in some cases know. Um, So there is sort of this uh, dichotomy in what the public thinks and um, what the agency uh, and our broader national security workforce, for that matter, is uh, really like. Uh, And in some cases, um, when you have people who uh, attack the agency um, on uh, the basis of privacy and civil liberties, you know, I think their argument would uh, would be really weakened if they were to see what it's like on the inside, if they were to see the care with which uh, the CIA, the NSA, the FBI, uh, the entire constellation of uh, national security departments and agencies uh, take their mission, uh, the respect they have for um, the rights of U.S. persons, the privacy of persons um, all over the world, consistent with uh, their mission to uh, learn about and to stop in their tracks uh, very bad things. So I think the more the American people could learn about the true CIA, the more confidence uh, they would ultimately have uh, in the agency's mission and capabilities. Well, and one of the dichotomies that I see is that the people who believe the CIA is this all-powerful organization, the Jack Bowers of the world, and that you know, or in Homeland where they save the world every time, or even the Bourne Bond thing, but also those that look at it as being like a cabal behind all bad things in the world, whether you know, false flag operations or the Alex Jones Infowars crowd. And there is a ref- reflex, whether it's American culture going back to the beginning or anything, to distrust the intelligence community. A lot of it has to do with the secrecy that's kind of inherent in the community itself, but a lot of it, I think, has to do with kind of this pop cultural representation of CIA. Now you have an administration and, and I'm not going to get political, but my guests can do whatever the hell they want to. Um, and people are laughing out there when I say I'm not going to get political because they know who I am. Um, where people are now struggling with this idea of having to fact check everything and fake news and everything else. How much harder would your job have been as a CIA spokesperson today? And how much harder has it been made by those kind of personalities, the Alex Joneses of the world, and even those who make the CIA out to be this com- omnipresent omniscient, uh, omnipotent organization that can kill anybody they want to with a drone across the world. Yeah. It's interesting the um, strange bedfellows that have been forged in this uh, peculiar political environment. You know, you have people like Alex Jones making common cause with people like Vladimir Putin. Um, They, in some ways, uh, are uh, similarly responsible for this notion that the CIA is the global boogeyman. The CIA has its fingerprints um, on everything from the Arab Spring to uprisings in the streets of Moscow in 2011 uh, to you name it. And um, I think that gives the CIA more credit uh, than it deserves. Um, and in some cases, it's, uh, well, in, in, in a lot of cases, it is just uh, flat out wrong um, to attribute uh, these actions, these developments uh, to the CIA or even the United States of America. We'll come back to this conversation shortly, but first let me take a quick minute to tell you about Action Heat. 
As you might know by now, I originally hail from a warmer part of the United States. And if you're from Oshkosh or Lincoln or Boise or Fargo, you might think D.C. winters are a bit of a joke. Well, it's cold to me. In making matters worse, there are times our offices are colder inside than it is outside. So needless to say, I became the envy of the office when my shipment from Action Heat arrived. Action Heat makes the world's best heated clothing. That's right, heated clothing powered by rechargeable batteries. It's the perfect solution to keep you toasty and warm even in the most frigid winter weather. Their clothing provides toasty warmth and comfort for your whole body, including heated jackets, socks, gloves, hats, and even undergarments like long johns. You can stay warm and cozy from head to toe with Action Heat. And did I mention the heated socks? Action Heat clothing is engineered to safely and efficiently deliver heat via heating panels similar to a heated car seat. They reach temperatures of up to 135 degrees and are powered by a rechargeable low-voltage lithium-ion battery that lasts up to, get this, 12 hours on each charge. What's even cooler, the batteries can also be used to recharge your phone or any other gadget while you're wearing them. Perfect for any friend or family on your holiday gift list and available in men's and women's styles. Heated products that fit everyone's budget starting at just $39.99. And they've got a special deal for our listeners to save 15% off your entire order. Just go to action-heat.com spy to check out everything Action Heat has to offer. That's action-heat.com spy. Or you could even just use the coupon code SPY at checkout to save 15%. Stay toasty and warm while you enjoy all your outdoor activities this winter with Action Heat. You know, on the broader question of uh, what it what it would be like for the CIA or what it is like for the CIA today in this in this current environment, you know, the the job of the agency and certainly the job of the public facing offices uh, within the CIA, the Office of Public Affairs, uh, the Office of Congressional Affairs, uh, I, today's atmosphere, I'm sure and I'm confident, has uh, made their job all the much more difficult um, because what we have seen emanate in some cases from the Oval Office uh, are the very messages that are, uh, are that our adversaries have put out for so many years, uh, be it Vladimir Putin, um, be it uh, other dictators um, around the world, um, be it Fidel Castro. Uh, it's, it's, once again, you see common cause um, between uh, some of these figures. And to my mind, one of the most uh, pernicious aspects of this all has been um, the, in in some cases, the commander in chief's tendency to denigrate uh, the work of uh, the CIA, to call into question uh, the analysis that emanates from the analytic ranks uh, of the agency, to compare, uh, as he did during the presidential transition, the agency uh, and its um, brethren within the national security. Uh, workforce to Nazis. Um, and in fact, these were the same forces uh, in the case of the CIA, its predecessor, the OSS, that took on um, the forces of Nazism during World War II that um, in many cases have worked against um, some of these uh, similar forces around the world. So I think it really does a disservice uh, to the men and women of uh, the CIA many of whom, all of whom I would say, joined uh, because they believe uh, in the values of the Constitution. Uh, you know, we uh, raised our right hands and we swore to protect the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Um, and the CIA itself is now coming under attack uh, from a domestic adversary in some cases. You, you were a briefer to President Obama prior uh, as a, P, a PDB briefer part of it, not to Obama, to yep. somebody else. Okay. Yep. But you were part, you know, right. you worked closely with him later on outside of the CIA. Right. And I'm wondering about kind of the politicization of intelligence yeah. uh, that may or may not take place, not just for this administration, for others. Because I assume you tried to do all you could to divorce politics from the intelligence that yeah. was presented, the information that was presented. It's kind of human nature in many cases to bringing the thoughts and per persuasions of the analytical teams, the collectors, et cetera, to the table. I mean, a lot of times I, I liken it to editing a textbook, right? It's supposed to be objective, but it's the, you're making the decisions about what to include and what not to include. Is that something that, you know, was, was ingrained into you at CIA as a briefer, you know, to make sure that you take politics out of 
the information that you're providing the policymakers? Yeah, ab- absolutely. In the case of uh, my uh, briefing stint at the agency, I was briefing internal customers. Mm-hmm. So uh, the CIA director, the, the head of the, uh, what was called the uh, Director of Intelligence at the time, the DI. Uh, so I wasn't briefing um, policymakers on the PDB. So that, that removed that element uh, uh, of it from my briefings. But I can tell you that one of the lessons that CIA analysts uh, have really hammered into their heads, um, uh, not quite day one, but almost day one, is uh, the danger of politicization. Uh, this is an agency that in 2002 and 2003 uh, lived this. It, it, the, the scars and the, and the bruises and the wounds in 2006 were still fresh, uh, and uh, I know they were equally fresh uh, in 2017. Uh, so it's a workforce that really gets its hackles up uh, when it detects any effort uh, to politicize what is supposed to be unvarnished intelligence information. Um, and I saw this from the other uh, perspective at the White House. And, um, you know, I can speak to the Obama White House. There was a uh, very firm and uh, inviolable wall uh, between policy and intelligence. Uh, that's not to say that intelligence always dictated policy decisions, uh, but intelligence was treated as uh, one of the inputs and a sacrosanct input at that in the policy discussion. There was no effort to shape intelligence. Uh, Sometimes uh, the policy preferences uh, wouldn't quite uh, jive with the intelligence presentation uh, that was put on the table, but that's just the way it went. There was no effort to shape the the intelligence so that uh, the two could mesh together. Well, let me ask you about that, because how much of a complication does tasking or targeting, whatever word you want to use, complicate that i complicate the the mission of trying to separate policy from intelligence because how a leader asks the questions you know and what what you as a policymaker decide gets the attention is even if they're not trying it's adding a political slant to a degree i mean i'm using words that i you know vernacular semantics we can debate that all you want to but i think back to iraqi wmd it's not, are there Iraqi WMDs? It's where are the Iraqi WMDs, right? That just that minor shift in semantics has massive repercussions. Yeah. And so the question the president asks, you know, what he wants to know, how he wants to know it, what his personal visions are for the future of the country, whether he cares a lot about North Korea or doesn't, doesn't that help to shape the what the intelligence agencies actually do on a day-to-day basis? In order for intelligence to be relevant, uh, there has to be there has to be a relationship between policymakers and intelligence officials. There has to be this uh, uh, free flow of questions and answers, questions emanating from the policymakers, answers uh, coming back from the intelligence community. Otherwise, uh, intelligence analysts are just writing. Uh, papers that you would find in any Washington think tank that really have uh, very little relevance and even less sway uh, within the policy community. It becomes incumbent upon uh, managers and leaders uh, within the intelligence community when these questions are asked, knowing that, as you uh, suggested, they're being asked through a political lens, uh, to ensure that the answers that are fed back are uh, sterile and they're removed of any uh, uh, political bias whatsoever. Uh, and analysts within the CIA are especially attuned to this. Um, so it's it's rarely, uh, I rarely found it to be an issue, um, but it really is up to uh, the briefers. It is up to the leaders of the intelligence community, the director, the deputy director, the head of the analytic division, uh, to ensure that um, if a question is asked through a political lens, the answer comes back devoid of that. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm wondering, th- you know, through your time there, especially at the White House, where you saw kind of the other side of this. Um, every president's had kind of different relationships with the agencies and different ways of being briefed. I mean, the the stories coming out of the Obama administration was that he was a hardcore reader. He asked lots and lots of hard questions. Clinton loved to read raw intelligence. You know, Bush, for all the kind of, you know, caricatures of his intelligence, was actually a very good person to brief. We won't get too much into kind of the crayons and, and, and coloring book of the current administration. Um, but that has to affect the way the relationship works as well. Those like the Clintons and others who really dug deep into this versus those who had a more of a, 
accept at face value explanation of what the agencies were giving them. It does. It does. I, um, you know, I had always found, um, you know, as you said, uh, George W. Bush to be very um, engaged uh, in his intelligence briefings from the feedback that we as analysts received. Uh, when we wrote a PDB for President Bush, uh, we would without exception or almost without exception get feedback uh sometimes it was as simple as you know the president read this with interest and was appreciative sometimes it would be you know the president found this outrageous and you know wanted x y and z done um and then of course as you said uh president obama had a different style and he digested uh towards the uh, latter half of the administration his intelligence on the ipad um uh, often in the residence before coming to the Oval Office. And then he would sit with his national security team and a representative of uh, the DNI um, to delve into a little more detail, uh, ask any questions. But uh, the Obama national security team really used those sessions as an opportunity to table policy issues. Uh, it was an opportunity for President Obama to get together with his national security advisor and his deputy national security advisors, along with the vice president and the vice president's national security advisor, uh, to um, essentially scour the horizon and to discuss not only what was in that day's book, uh, but also to discuss broader issues and to make decisions. Um, it was uh, the one surefire time during the day when the entire team uh, was assembled in the Oval Office with a representative from the DNI. And granted, uh, the intelligence representative would not engage in the policy discussions, uh, but if there was a tasking to emanate uh, from that session, if there was a factual question uh, that came up, uh, that representative could then take that back to the intelligence community. You know, I think different presidents have engaged uh, with their PDB briefers with their um, uh, CIA representatives in different uh, styles. But in some ways, we almost put too much emphasis on the first customer. Uh, the PDB is, of course, written for the president. Uh, but cabinet secretaries uh, in multiple departments and agencies receive the PDB. Uh, there are PDB briefers who go to the NSC mm -hmm. on a daily basis uh, to engage with policy staff there. Uh, there are uh, others within the State Department uh, who receive intelligence briefings. So, of course, you have the first customer, and that's the most important feedback and impression you're going to make. Uh, but there are various touch points um, between the intelligence community and the policy community where you can still get that feedback, and the intel analysts can get a sense for what the policy community uh, cares about and is prioritizing, and the policy community can uh, just as importantly and probably more importantly get a sense for what um, the intelligence community is seeing and hearing on the ground. Let me ask you about the National Security Council because you were intimately involved with it for, for several years. And when the Trump administration came in, there were conversations and there were actual reorganizations of the National Security Council, and there are still conversations about continuing to tweak it to, to make it more amenable to the administration. I saw this when it happened as, what the hell are they doing? Uh, was I overreacting, or, or was this, this is, is that problematic to you as somebody who was there uh, as it was to me? Well, you know, the National Security Council staff has undergone uh, a lot of trauma and drama in the first nine months of uh, the Trump administration. Uh, the three or so weeks of the Mike Flynn uh, 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 rule uh, were characterized by tumult and uh, disorganization. And the waters have calmed a bit, as I understand, uh, with H.R. McMaster uh, now at the helm. But the real challenge is that the, the process, and really the National Security Council is all about process. Um, there's, of course, the, the council itself, whose statutory members are set out in one of the first, uh, and usually the first, uh, national security directive to be signed by the president. Uh, but the staff runs the process of foreign policy. And so it's bringing together, or at least it should be, bringing together policymakers, uh, along with intel representatives at the various levels, at uh, the senior working level, at the deputies level, meaning the deputies uh, within uh, each department and agency, at the principals level, and then um, in cases where the president's input is needed at the level of the National Security Council, where you have cabinet uh, heads meeting with the president in a meeting chaired by the president, uh, typically for the president to make a decision. The challenge has been that this administration, um, by and large, has uh, 
not tended to favor process, and I think to their detriment. And uh, what you've had, what you have had, from what I've heard from those who have remained on the inside, uh, is a failure to convene the deputies, is a failure to convene the principals, is a failure to have uh, this routinized process uh, through which very hard, challenging, difficult issues that involve equities that touch the intelligence world, the military world, the diplomatic world, the defense world, uh, you name it, where representatives from all of these different entities are supposed to come around the table and tackle them head on at uh, increasing levels of seniority. And now, at least for a, a large part of the first nine months of the Trump administration, you have had a process where someone can just walk into the Oval Office, uh, you know, catch the president's ear and uh, put a bug in his ear uh, about an issue of foreign or domestic policy. Um, now, of course, uh, when the new White House chief of staff, uh, John Kelly, came in, he's said to have limited that to, to some degree. Um, to what extent that still occurs, I, I couldn't say. But the lack of process has really been uh, the detriment uh, to this uh, national security process and to this administration's foreign policy. And I think you see that borne out um, publicly, at least, in some of the contradictory statements you hear from the president and then his secretary of defense and secretary of state and national security advisors on some of the most prominent issues uh, like North Korea, like whether someone's going to be sent to Guantanamo Bay. Right. Um, you name it. You just hear this uh, discord and disarray that still exists today. I mean, message discipline is non-existent, it seems. I mean, there's... It's, it's public message discipline seems to be non-existent, but what really concerns me is that there is no policy process. Um, the way it, it's supposed to work is that messaging flows from policy. Um, you have a policy process that is routinized, that's organized. Uh, you come to a policy decision, uh, and then oftentimes with the same people around the table, you say, okay, well, how are we going to talk about that publicly? When you don't have the process that arrives at a policy decision, you're, of course, are going to have uh, a lack of message discipline across the board, and I think that's what we're seeing. Well, in a lot of cases, the president is making policy you know, when he wakes up in the morning and watches the news and then and then the White House and the Security Council and the, like the leadership like Sarah Huckabee Sanders are forced to double and triple down on policies that weren't necessarily thought out. And you no know, SMEs were brought in that this was kind of whim policy. It's it's almost like Fox and Friends uh, has more influence than the than the PDB briefing uh, these days. I mean, you certainly see uh, tweets that uh, are uh, pegged to Fox and Friends. Fortunately, we haven't seen too many tweets uh, that contain classified information. Although there was at least one uh, that seems to have uh, contained uh, highly classified information. Uh, but I think we can count our stars if there's only been one so far. So let me. Let me ask you the question that I think that that's key to this conversation. And to remind the listeners, you you started your service at CIA under the Bush administration. You were certainly involved at relatively high levels with the Obama administration. But I want to ask you why you're no longer working for this administration. Um, and from everything I've read, it's a very specific time period, a very specific speech that the president gave, President Trump gave, that put you over the edge. Yeah, so just to set the table, I was at the Obama White House always as a CIA detailee. I was detailed um, from uh, what was then known as the DI, the Director of Intelligence, uh, to uh, the National Security Council staff. And so the plan had been for me to finish out uh, the administration. That would have been a natural point for me to go back uh, to the CIA uh, as an analyst. In the fall of last year, in the fall of 2016, however, uh, I started to have a little bit of unease. Um, and it was unease that was uh, never at the fore because what I was hearing from uh, candidate Trump at the time, you know, I sort of dismissed as, well, this person will never be president anyways. We don't have to, we don't have to worry about this. Um, but, of course, um, he became the nominee uh, and his, he started getting uh, intelligence briefings when he uh, won the Republican nomination, and his rhetoric uh, was not at all toned down. In the third debate, uh, as I recall, uh, last October, uh, he just casually dismissed the high-confidence findings of the entire intelligence community that were uh, released publicly on October 7th, uh, that the Russians were behind uh, this effort to meddle in our elections. And at the time, you have to remember that uh, the public conclusion was not that the Russians were trying to help Donald Trump and denigrate Hillary Clinton. It was just the Russians were, right. were meddling. And yet he cast that aside. 
We'll have more of Ned in just a moment, but let me take a minute to tell you about movement. Movement watches, again spelled MVMT but pronounced movement, was founded on the belief that style shouldn't break the bank. The watchmaker's goal is to change the way consumers think about fashion by offering high-quality minimalist products at revolutionary prices. With over 1 million watches sold to customers in over 160 countries around the world, Movement Watches has solidified itself as the world's fastest-growing watch company. And it's that time again. The holiday shopping season is here. Yay. With Movement, you can skip the crowds and standing in crazy lines and find a gift they'll love at prices that beat department stores. Thanks to Movement, all the gift-giving anxiety of the holidays can disappear with the press of a single button. These watches make the perfect purchase for just about anyone in your life, guy or girl. And remember, they started only $95. So now let's finish your holiday shopping and get a movement watch for someone on your list. Let me mention they start at just $95 at a department store. You're looking at $400 to $500 for a watch of this quality. Movement figured out that by selling online, they're able to cut off the middleman and retail markup, providing us the best possible price. It brings you classic design, quality construction, and stylized minimalism. And again, over 1 million watches sold in over 160 countries. So get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns by going to movement.com slash spycast. That's mvmt.com slash spycast. Look, the watch I have is a really clean design. Seriously, I've been compliments on it ever since I put it on. So now is the time to step up your watch game. Go to movement.com slash spycast. Join the movement. Well, let me, let me let me stop for a second. You can continue on this this idea of high confidence. I, I want to I want to make sure that the listeners understand that this is not kind of the way we use high confidence in our normal day to day lives. That that's about as good as it gets from the intelligence agency. They're not going to give you one hundred percent, a thousand percent surety. High confidence is basically saying we know. There's there's a, a joke that uh, you know it would be difficult for all 17 intelligence agencies to have high confidence in the color of, in the color of the sky. Um, some would say it's blue. Some would say no. Today it's more turquoise. No, it's more of a denim color. But no, this was a high confidence judgment on the part of the intelligence community that the Russians were meddling in our election. Uh, and yet uh, the president, uh, well, th- at the time, the Republican nominee had been briefed uh, by uh, our intelligence community leaders, and yet he uh, consistently uh, just cast that aside. Um, fast forward, he's the president-elect, and to go back to the uh, rhetoric I mentioned before, he uh, take it, he, he swung uh, pretty hard at the intelligence community, compared them to Nazis, uh, compared them uh, you know, to the Gestapo, which again, uh, the predecessors to um, the, the CIA, the OSS in this case, uh, had taken on um, during the Second World War. And then um, you're right. Uh, this rhetoric didn't really uh, – he didn't tone it down. Um, but on his first day uh, – on his first full day in office, it was a Saturday after uh, the Friday inauguration, uh, President Trump, then President Trump, went to CIA headquarters in Langley. And apparently this was an effort uh, to – smooth over and any fences, right? to yeah, mend right. fences to smooth over any any ruffled feathers uh and he did so in a in a in a very distinctly trumpian way he uh stood there in front of cia's memorial wall uh which at the time had 117 stars carved into it uh each star of course representing a fallen officer who had given his or her life uh uh in service of the cia in service of uh, the United States, and instead of pay homage to what was behind him, instead of uh, acknowledge the sacrifices of the men and women in front of him, instead of speak to uh, the indispensable mission of the agency, he bragged about the size of uh, the crowd uh, at his inauguration the previous day. He joked about going back into Iraq to steal its oil. He politicized the speech. He was overtly partisan and uh, made a reference to the number of the people in the audience that voted for him. And, you know, all I could think about, and to be clear, I uh, hightailed it out of uh, Washington uh, inauguration day uh, and headed down to uh, to uh, to a beach to sort of decompress for a couple days after after leaving the White House. So I was watching this from afar, but all I could see was the president and that wall behind him, and all I could think about 
um, were the officers with whom I served uh, that were marked on that wall, including uh, one very close mentor of mine, uh, someone who um, really took me under her wing and uh, taught me a lot of, uh, of what I came to learn about uh, counterterrorism and uh, how you take on that mission. Um, and so to me, that was um, uh, an unforgivable sin. Um, but with this president, it wasn't the end. Uh, he then, a couple days later, um, issued this first national security directive, and uh, it named principals to the National Security Council. And among them was Steve Bannon. And uh, removed from the statutory um, principals committee was the director of national intelligence and the director of the CIA, as well as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And so to me, the message was clear. This was an administration that was going to prize ideology over over knowledge, over facts. Uh, and I felt, as a CIA analyst, someone whose charge it would be to um, analyze world events, to try to provide value-added and insights where I could, that if I were doing that job, at best, uh, my reports would get to the White House or other policy centers where they would gather dust. Mm -hmm. At worst, they just wouldn't go anywhere, and I would be twiddling my thumbs uh, day in, day out. And that wasn't how, you know, I wanted to um, – I, I engaged in public service for a reason, and I didn't think that was the best way I could carry out that mission. Just to dig down a little bit, because I think our listeners will know the name. The mentor you refer to is Jessica Matthews. That's right. You know, who was killed at Coast with, what, seven? Jennifer Matthews. That's right. Jesus, yep. Jennifer yep. Matthews. Yep. Uh, was, was at Coast with, what, six seven? Others. Six others. Yep. So seven total. That's right. Um, you know, and, and that that is um, – that's a story that's that's known by some, but you know that that's pretty extraordinary. Where analysts are put in a position, you know, during this war on terror to to be at the forefront of some of these operations, and and there there are, there are many who feel like feel like you about that particular speech in front of that wall. Yeah. Um, and the easiest thing in the world would have been just to have the camera in the podium in the other side of the room. It right. still would have been inappropriate, yeah. but it yeah. wouldn't have been right. an affront to you know the men and women who uh, who gave their lives in service. So let me ask you then about how has Mike Pompeo done? How has Dan Coats done? Um, Pompeo, in my opinion, seemed to have been doing relatively well until recently, where he's somewhat again politicization seems to have come into the forefront here, and, and some of the stuff he said publicly yeah. as director of CIA. Yeah, you know, Director Pompeo doesn't speak like your typical CIA director, and, and that, that worries me. I mean, of course, his background is uh, as, a, as a congressman. He served as chairman of the House Intel Committee. Uh, he knew the agency in that capacity, so he took the job um, and was able to take it, uh, to take it running. Uh, but what worries me about him is the impression I get that he hasn't shed his partisan coat. Uh, and that he still approaches these things as a partisan uh, lawmaker as opposed to uh, the head of the CIA who is supposed to present facts uh, and, in the case of covert action, present um, uh, uh, options to the White House. Uh, and what you hear from Mike Pompeo, I'll give you one example. Um, I'll give you two examples, actually. Uh, in Aspen, at the Aspen Security uh, Summit uh, over the summer, he was asked about Russian meddling in our election. And his answer started off in the right direction. He said, yes, of course the Russians meddled uh, in the past election, and the election before that, and the election before that, and the election before that. And it was quite clear that he was trying to make this seem as though it were just sort of run-of-the-mill Russian interference. Right. It, it was the same thing that, uh, you know, in his telling, it was the same thing that the Russians did in uh, the 1976 election when they tried to recruit a young Democratic activist to spy on Jimmy Carter. I mean, this is, this is obviously uh, qualitatively different than what we had seen before, um, but the director uh, was not willing to uh, admit to that, probably with an eye towards uh, his boss. Uh, and one other example, in the case of Iran, you know, you hear him speak uh, as if he were Nikki Haley, the U.S. representative to the United Nations, or as if he were the Secretary of State. He speaks of Iran not living up to the spirit of the deal. He, uh, he has been a champion, uh, as I understand it, both on the inside and if you listen to his remarks, uh, his public remarks on the outside, of uh, tearing up the Iran deal. And it's fine for CIA directors to have um, 
their own private political opinions. Um, I, you know, I think we can guess the politics of, of previous directors. Uh, but what distinguishes director Pompeo is that he seems to have no compunction with expressing these publicly. Uh, and I think in doing so, he really calls into question not only his own credibility, uh, but also the credibility of um, the, the, the work product that the agency puts out. You know, the, the last director uh, who had the same pedigree that uh, Director Pompeo has was Porter Goss. Uh, he was similarly uh, a congressman on the, on the House Intel Committee, uh, and his tenure was uh, tumultuous and short. Um, because he thought of himself still as a partisan lawmaker and never as the uh, director of the CIA. I started uh, uh, at CIA when Porter Goss uh, was in that role. Um, the person who swore me into office uh, was later indicted and sentenced to a couple years in prison, as, as I recall. Uh, there were leaks left, right, and center coming out of the agency. It was a very unhappy time with uh, morale uh, plummeting. And I'm concerned that if Director Pompeo continues down this course, uh, his tenure will in some ways closely resemble that. Well, and even something that seems benign, like the release of the bin Laden documents, which as a historian, I'm like, sweet, we get to find out that bin Laden had the Charlie bit my finger video on his computer and that he had something called boobies JPEG or something. But but this there's a potentially a, a much more nefarious reason behind this. Um, particularly the idea of trying to tag uh, or trying to connect in some way bin Laden and al-Qaeda to Iran. Yeah, that's exactly right. Look, um, when it comes to the bin Laden cache, uh, there were millions upon millions of files, um, some retrieved in hard copy, some retrieved from laptops and other media um, that were taken from the compound in Abbottabad in, in May of 2011. Uh, it took the CIA um, uh, leading an interagency task force many, many months to sort of triage this information. And first and foremost, we were looking at information of intelligence value, information that could point to plots that could and would come to fruition, uh, information that would help identify operatives that uh, previously hadn't been on our radar, anything that was of intelligence value uh, in those millions of pages. Once that process was completed, uh, in... 2014, I believe it was, uh, the CIA, um, at the direction of the DNI, then undertook this process of, well, what can we declassify and make available to the public? Because a lot of this was of public interest. It had, as you said, tre tremendous historical value. And so over the course of two and a half years, um, the CIA led an interagency team uh, and went through, once again, these millions of pages to determine uh, what could be uh, released publicly. And so over the course of three tranches, uh, the first coming in 2015, uh, one more in 2016, and a f what we thought was the final one in January 2017, the intelligence community, the DNI, uh, put out uh, these files, which um, all of which were of public interest, which shed light on Al Qaeda's structure and capabilities well, the and ben personalities. The bookshelf thing was fascinating. Exactly, it was all of historical interest, and this was a process that was led by intelligence professionals. And uh, the professionals reported back to the White House, where I was at the time, that you know we deem that uh, everything of significant public interest has been released. Uh, of course, it's a cost-benefit analysis because you know we have. Uh, uh, a number of good people who had to be pulled off otherwise pressing missions to sift through this. Right, there's not like a collection of people ready to look at bin Laden documents. Exactly. They actually pull real analysts off of their and real jobs. These have to be cleared CIA yeah. analysts to go through this material. And so the judgment was made that uh, the material of public interest had been released and uh, the DNI uh, announced in January of this year that, uh, as they said, um, the, the book had been closed. And then lo and behold, uh, Director Pompeo in October of this year tells a conservative audience uh, at a Washington think tank whose uh, reason for being had become to, uh, to chip away at the Iran deal. He tells them that uh, when speaking, uh, when asked about Iran's ties to al-Qaeda and al-Qaeda's ties to Iran, he said, well, you know, we're going to have some more bin Laden files uh, that will shed light on this question. And so uh, yesterday, uh, the CIA followed through with that. And it just so happens that they gave a, an advanced preview of these files to the journal of this same uh, Washington, conservative Washington think tank. 
Uh, and so the director's motives in doing so seems to have been pretty clear. Um, when intelligence professionals uh, earlier this year said that um, they had concluded that the cost-benefit analysis uh, dictated that you know we'd done enough and, and everything of significant historical value had been um, put forward, um, he decided otherwise and um, decided to take people off those jobs once again and to restart this mission. And, um, you know, we did learn that bin Laden has the Charlie bit my finger video, but, um, you know, whether the benefit of that outweighed the costs of these people once again returning to sifting through historical material, uh, it's, uh, I think that's a, a question uh, I'm not prepared to, to fully know. Uh, I do find it striking, however, that uh, the CIA reportedly late last week, objected to the release of decades-old records from the Kennedy assassination, right. and uh, yet uh, Director Pompeo prioritized this effort to get out uh, additional files from the much more recent bin Laden documents. I want to ask you about the, the congressional committees. I'm not going to ask you to deal with Hipsy and Devin Nunez because we could be here all day, but one thing I actually find comforting to a degree is SSCI had always been considered above politics, um, much in the same way the Armed Services Committees used to be considered that way. And it seems that SSCI, to a degree, is maintaining that reputation, where you see Burr and Warner crossing the party lines, you know, regardless of what Burr might say in the public or Warner might say in the public. They seem to be working together fairly well, as does the rest of the committee, to try to get to the bottom of this without too much politics getting in the way. Yeah, that's right. I think I think the uh, sissy has been one of the very few bright spots in this. And, you know, I think Congress uh, will, when the history is written of uh, this period, really come away with a black eye. And, you know, hipsies, troubles, we don't even have to go into those, as you said. But I think you, re- you really have to go back to last fall, uh, the fall of, of 2016, when a lot of this was coming to the fore. And um, the Obama administration... Um, has taken a lot of heat for trying to approach this threat and uh, what we saw emanating from Moscow in an entirely nonpartisan way. And so the first step of the Obama administration in, in, in attempting to, to make this public was to go to Congress and was to go to both the Republican and Democratic leadership and say, this is what's happening uh, it would be a tremendous signal not only to all Americans, not only to all um, presidential contenders, but also to the entire world if, in a bipartisan fashion, you would come forward and um, attribute this activity to the Russian government uh, and send a very clear signal that it wouldn't be tolerated. Um, but Senator McConnell, in particular, uh, had no need for that. Uh, and he, uh, well, you'll have to ask him about his motivations, but it had always stru- struck me that he didn't want to do anything that could further harm the chances of uh, Donald Trump, who at the time seemed to be uh, lagging far behind his Democratic contender. So fast forward uh, to these multiple investigations, and uh, you have at least one congressional committee that does seem to have uh, a good degree of comedy. Um, and I think it, it's right that there is, uh, it does provide a, a measure of reassurance. I think the real question, however, will be just what the Senate is able to produce. Um, if they'll be able to produce a joint report, um, if it will devolve into what we saw with the various Benghazi committees, mm-hmm. with majority and minority reports that say starkly different things. But I think it would be, it would send a very strong signal um, that this is not a partisan issue. It's not a political issue, that this is uh, an American issue. It's about a threat to our democracy. If uh, the Senate committee were able to continue that uh, cooperation and put forward a bipartisan report uh, that chronicles exactly what happened. Well, your fears are are certainly well-founded, and I think back to this exact committee, although with different members, putting out the torture report that was as bifurcated as it possibly could be, uh, where uh, one side said one thing, one side said the other. Hopefully we're not headed down that path moving forward. Let me me shift gears quickly, because I I don't want to keep you here for three hours, although we certainly have that conversation (laughs) on my side for that long, but... Uh, something I've always found dangerous, I'm, I'm ex-military myself, uh, and, but it seems like it's gotten a little bit worse, and it may not be just this administration specifically, but the civil-military divide. is. I, mean, I know you've written about this. Um, I try to at least do some research on this. But it seems in this administration, and, and General Dunford, who's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, 
has to remain above politics, but it's, I think the dynamic with General Mattis, or now Secretary Mattis, is pretty interesting. And I think historians are going to have a lot of interesting looks at the person who is part of a presidential administration as a civilian. He can be political if he wants to. Prior Secretaries of Defense have been very political in the past. But it seems like there's been a almost an overt politicization of some of the other generals. I'm thinking of John Kelly very much in this circumstance. And Mattis has been able to stay completely above the phrase, but think, think about stuff like the transgender bans and some of the other pronouncements about North Korea and others that have come out of the White House that have become official policy, as we talked about, you know, for the White House and, you know, whether it's Sarah Huckabee Sanders or anybody else, and Mattis in the military saying, no, nah, we're not going to do that. That yeah. seems unheard of, right? I mean, that... It's, it's, it's been uh, tremendous to watch. Um, and, you know, most of those decisions on the part of uh, people like Mattis, on the part of people like Dunford, uh, I have applauded and respected uh, from a policy standpoint. Uh, you know, both came out uh, as strongly as they could against, for example, the transgender ban, uh, which a court uh, just um, uh, prohibited from going, to, going into effect. Uh, both came out and um, essentially tried to tamp down uh, the hyperbolic statements emanating from the White House that, you know, we were on the cusp of nuclear war with North Korea, which I, I think we can all, uh, uh, we all owe them a, a debt of gratitude for. So from a policy standpoint, it's been reassuring. But from a constitutional standpoint, from a, right. a, a, a standpoint of precedent, it, it's also a little concerning. Yeah, no, so one of my, 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 my left-wing friends who are all like, they're so great, I'm like, if it was reversed, you wouldn't be saying that. Absolutely. And if you, if you take politics out of it, it's not a good situation to Absolutely. be in. And, you know, in some ways, um, this has been of the administration's own doing. They have placed uh, uh, uniformed... Uh, military generals and uh, retired generals uh, throughout leadership positions. And look at H.R. McMaster. Yeah. He's in a really uh, unique and, and in many ways odd position because he is still a currently serving lieutenant general. Uh, and he doesn't always, he doesn't often wear the uniform now, but he is currently serving. Uh, and as a national security advisor, it's impossible or nearly impossible, I would say probably impossible, to stay entirely above the political fray. Uh, well, that's the, just the, the nature of the politicization of something, stuff coming out of this White House, whether it's Sarah Huckabee Sanders saying we should never question a four-star general talking yeah. about uh, the now White House chief of staff, John Kelly. But this certainly depends on your team and talking about the rift here because Trump has gone after Colin Powell and John Allen and Martin Dempsey and Barry McCaffrey, all of whom are four-star generals. I mean, you know, Wesley Clark hasn't been part of this conversation, but I'm sure Trump doesn't have good say, things to say about a former Democratic presidential candidate. So, I mean, this we're digging ourselves into this, if you like the side of the politics of the general, you should follow the general. I mean, I thought we'd gotten beyond this with Douglas MacArthur, you know, going after Sherman in the 1950s. Absolutely. I mean, the precedent it sets on both sides, both um, in some cases, military leaders, uniformed or not, standing up to a civilian administration uh, in some areas, and then the administration, uh, in some cases, engaging in this uh, worship, this deification of military generals. Um, it's tremendously dangerous for a country... Uh, that has been predicated on the principle of civilian rule and of uh, civilian rule of the armed forces. It's Article 2 of the Constitution that makes the uh, President of the United States a civilian leader, the Commander-in-Chief. Uh, the Secretary Mattis had to be given a special waiver mm -hmm. uh, because the statutory period um, uh, between his uh, retirement and, and his nomination to be Secretary of Defense uh, had not been passed. Uh, so I think it's, it's, a, it's a very dangerous thing on, on, on both sides, what, what we've been seeing. But what also has, has struck me, you listen to President Trump and his language, it's, it's in many ways very scary. He talks about my generals. Mm -hmm. uh, he talks about, uh, uh, you know, he, everything is possessive uh, uh, to him. He doesn't uh, see a distinction uh, between himself and the United States of America. Um, uh, it's, you know, you go back to, to the French Revolution and the old saying, you know, the, the, the I am the state, the state is me. Uh, and I think it's pretty, 
it's pretty concerning if if you play that out. Um, and I'm hopeful that we'll see a course correction uh, with the next administration. Uh, but they've set a lot of uh, dangerous precedents in a lot of different areas here. Well, let me follow up, and, and we'll end up uh, with a lighter question with serious implications, but it's a little bit lighter. If you were a leadership analyst for the Russians or the Chinese or the North Koreans or the Iranians or anybody who doesn't like us all that much, how much would you be loving life right now with the Twitter feed of Donald Trump? I mean, is there a leader in human history who has given out more information freely and voluntarily to people trying to psychoanalyze and figure out what the American leadership is up to. And you can't blame this on social media. This is not a, because Obama could have been all over social media. Even George Bush could have been all over social media. Um, and they certainly held their policies much closer to their vest. I mean, there's a gold mine. Every single day, there's a gold mine of information being put out there about American policy and policy in our future from the president of the United States. It's, uh, you know, Twitter for him, uh, and not just since he's been president, but if you go back and, and over the course of the years that he's used it, it's a roadmap to how he thinks, to what makes him tick, to what motivates him, uh, to what makes him angry, to what makes him happy. It, it is, you know, it would make the job of a leadership analyst uh, uh, in some ways effortless yeah. uh, because there wouldn't be much analysis required. It's just going back through history and sifting through the thousands of tweets uh, he has uh, tweeted on, on every topic imaginable. So I think Twitter is is a big element of this. But, you know, he's also a president who uh, emotes and he's a president who really um, wears his emotions and his motives in some ways on his sleeve. And, you know, I think, you know, I've written that if you're um, if you're a foreign counterpart and you want to really sweeten the president up, all you have to do is is compliment him. All you have to do is. Uh, speak about investment opportunities in your country. Um, maybe how great it would be if they opened a Trump National Golf Course uh, in in, uh, in an underdeveloped region that you have. Um, invite the sons to come out and to show them around. And to shoot harmless, exactly you know, shoot defenseless you, animals. Uh, yeah. Shoot large large game animals. Um, so it's it's this is the, really the first time I, I think we've had a commander in chief. Uh, who has provided both our allies and our adversaries um, with everything they need to know to um, to to win him over. And I think you've seen some leaders uh, do that spectacularly. Uh, President Xi of China um, seems to uh, have done that to some degree. President Macron of, of, of France, um, despite all odds, seems to have uh, developed uh, a level of, of, of kinship and a relationship uh, with the president. And there are others who uh, clearly have tried. I, I have a sneaking suspicion that when the president meets uh, President Duterte of the Philippines in the, in the coming days, they too will, will hit it off. They seem a lot alike in some ways. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's good for our allies. It's good for our adversaries. It's, it's not always good for us. Well, Ned, thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. We truly appreciate your insight. And again, uh, he was the one being political, not me. Um, <laughs> no one believes that. It's fine. Um, send your emails like you always do. Uh, we do our best. Appreciate it, Ned. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. We'd like to thank Movement Watches for continuing to support the SpyCast family and welcome Action Heat to the team. Remember, you can get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns by going to movement.com slash spycast and save 15% off your entire Action Heat order. Just go to action-heat.com slash spy or use the coupon code spy at checkout. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.